Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Frame and Sequence podcast. My name is Todd Rittendero, and in this episode, I sit down and chat with painter and sculptor James Michalopoulos in his New Orleans studio. Probably best known for his singular style, painting portraits of New Orleans shotgun houses and Creole cottages, James captures the spirit and essence of his subject in layer upon layer of thick impasto paint, brimming with color and energy. Today, he divides his time between New Orleans and Burgundy. During a trip to France in 1990, he fell in love with Provence and the Burgundy region and bought a home near Cluny. The French countryside, with its Roman era stone buildings and verdant fields, has become a large focus of his work, grappling with the notions of elemental biological life and the evidence of cohabitation with nature. His artwork continues to be shown extensively in the U.S. and abroad in galleries and in private collections. And if you're ever in New Orleans, definitely visit his gallery in the French Quarter, as his large-scale works definitely need to be experienced in person. We go pretty deep in this episode, and James shares a lot about his process and the way he thinks. We talk about some technique, finding your style, and probably most importantly, finding your truth through your work, among a lot of other things. I personally got a lot out of this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Enjoy. Well, thank you, James, so much for doing this. I really appreciate you sitting down with me. I've admired your work for years now, since my very first visit to New Orleans when I first set foot in your gallery and felt like your paintings had captured the magic and feeling of the city, which I know a lot of artists strive to do. But uh, I'm really excited to be here in your studio in New Orleans and uh, excited to ask you a bunch of questions that I've wanted to ask you for a long time. Terrific. Welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here, too. I remember reading in your bio that the, the first time you actually took up pencil and paper and started drawing was was on a, a vacation to Niagara Falls. That's right. And what was it then that made you pick up pencil and paper? Uh, largely boredom. <laughs> yeah. I uh, had brought some ponderous tombs to read. I was going to actually read a, a, an economics textbook, you know, uh, that I had been putting <laughs> off for a while. And I it was, I can't believe it. I was like two volumes in an immense tomb and they're very dense. And uh, I don't know what I was thinking, but uh, I was there in Niagara Falls and enjoying the ambiance and everything was great for a day or two. I, I think I expected more you know, to to do while I was there. And so on day day three, I basically, uh, after a period of relaxation, just started to doodle and was enjoying that as a an alternative to my reading. And did you have a natural affinity for drawing right off the bat? No, I would say not. I would say that I've still got a lot to room to cover when it comes to drawing, actually. I think that I had a natural affinity for dissecting something technical and that that was very interesting to me on an intellectual level, you know, the the notion of perspective, two point, one point, three point, and that it was something that I could more or less scientifically extract. So I was very much on that level and I would say the quality of the drawings was consistent with that too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then at what point did you decide that you wanted to really go all in on drawing and painting? I think that would probably have been quite a ways down the road. You know, for me, what showed up was that it was an intriguing challenge and that it was an enjoyable puzzle. And it was something that I could do for a period of time while I considered my next serious move. But it wasn't something that I actually considered that I would take on as a career. It was more something that I was going to use to occupy my time for a little while and then make a serious decision to go back to graduate school and get on to whatever career I chose. Right. So it was kind of like that. It was a placeholder. And what were you doing before that? I was the 
manager of Cambridge Food Co-op, which is the largest storefront food co-op in the, in the United States, actually in the world, and, and before that, the Boston Food Co-op. So it was actually that I was into community development, you know, on diff- several different levels. We were working on a bookstore and housing for underserved communities. And it was just an interesting notion to me as an alternative economic possibility uh, or one that was complementary to the system that we had, cooperative development. Right. And so I'd become, uh, during in school, influenced by some of the Swedish entrepreneurs that brought this cooperative vision to America and had built a rather large cooperative industry in the Midwest. And so I thought, oh, it looks like something that could work well in the, in the times. And so I was pretty heavily invested in that and looking at going on to continue my studies in either economics or perhaps law. Wow, that's yeah. a pretty drastic departure then to go the art route. <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was a big change in, in direction for sure. Yeah. And then was that, did that coincide with your moving to New Orleans? No, no, actually I, I got into that sort of after the tail end of my time in Boston. I had a couple of small businesses up there, Fruit Juice on the Loose and uh, Magical Melon Mobiles. And I had a little grocery store called Franco's and I decided to, to sell those and did. And then my plan was to go back to school and I thought I would teach and remain in Boston forever. I never thought I'd leave that town. I loved it. Well, as things go, you know, I developed an interest in, in art and drawing. So then what was it that first pulled you down to New Orleans? Well, I came here on a lark. Basically, I had continued my studies in the art following my misadventure in Niagara Falls. And, you know, just kind of developing my sensibility, uh, my sense of art and uh, my drawing and practicing on a daily basis and enjoying my time off uh, and, and enjoying the spoils of my, the sale of my businesses. So I continued with that and then I became influenced by a stream of philosophic thought in art, uh, basically the notion of plein air painting that that really important work was done in situ in the presence of of my subject so there was a prevailing ideology in or certainly a strong stream in the art world then and has been for ever ever since the impressionists Mm -hmm. about the importance of this and i became influenced by it and and started to subscribe to it. So I was always working outside in front of things, which gets difficult in Boston long about October. Yeah, so there I was in the middle of snowstorms trying to paint stuff in Boston and realized that, no, this wasn't gonna work for me. So I actually at some point relocated to DC, which was more temperate, but then at some point I had the same problem there. So I, considered a southern locale where I could work through the winter and at that time I was doing still drawing but I was also doing watercolor and trying pastel and broadening my my, the range of medium media that I worked in so um, I took a trip to New Orleans I actually hitchhiked across the country and uh, came into town and set up here I planned to stay I don't know two or three weeks but I ended up spending three months maybe 
Um, and New Orleans kind of, has that effect. <laughs> yes, it does. It does. I, I definitely was fascinated with the city, fell in love with it. And at some point, my girlfriend from D.C. flew down to retrieve me, um, which I think in recollection was necessary. I may not have made the trip back. Right. That's funny. <laughs> During that time, do you remember, did, did you have a mentor of any kind or were you looking at masters or just finding your own way? No, I had no mentors, although I was very influenced by the art culture of the city. I certainly took advantage of the galleries and I was often at Jackson Square watching people work. So I was very influenced and, you know, a lot of what I was doing was learning fundamentals at that point. Um, you know, I attended to it. I basically was studying drawing and teaching myself. I had books and I watched other people and I learned where I could. And were you moving more into oil or still playing with watercolor at that point? No, actually I was only doing even then, uh, I wasn't even in really in wet media. I had a moment with watercolor prior to that, but then left it and went back to the drawing and actually became very influenced by the, by the pastel work here in town. There was a, quite a scene of pastel portraits and pastel landscapes and so the medium was very interesting to me, you know, so I said, okay, I'm going to get it. And, it, you know, it has distinct advantages in the sense that you can select a color as opposed to having to necessarily make a color, although you can do that with a pastel by blending and all. It was my introduction to color. You could call it a gradual increase in the depth of engagement. You know, it was a manageable step. Right. And, and, and that's a huge one, going from black and white to color. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. some people never even make it. And for me, it was, uh, it was something that I did here under the influence of, of the Southern Light and all the, all the work going on and, and certainly the scene of pastels, which is more concentrated here than anywhere else in the country. Yeah. I would say it's probably was the most intense scene for pastels anywhere, while some artists work exclusively in them anywhere. You know, to here you could see 50 people working in them, and so it was a great, great opportunity wow. for me. It must have been incredible, yeah. It was. Wow. Yeah, I would often take my coffee, go to the morning to Jackson Square, and I'd, I'd make, a, make my rounds, and I could watch 15 or 20 people work. I'd take notes, and then I'd go and try it out myself in City Park. Yeah. And what people were pretty open about you asking questions or for the most part actually not necessarily asking questions but they're fine with you watching it in many cases they don't know right. you know their back is to the wall or to the to the the people behind them they're they're facing their work and and dedicated and concentration and so you know people are passing by constantly observing people working so i was just one of many people watching people work and then did you set up a routine for yourself like you mentioned, you, go, you went to Jackson Square, kind of picked it up. Was that a daily type of thing that you were doing? Yeah, yeah, not strictly speaking, or a, you know, a formal routine, but it was certainly my routine. Yeah. yeah, I would go there. I mean, it was had at this point become a earnest engagement for me, mm -hmm. and so it was a very regular part of my day. And I often was very pointedly looking for certain things, like I could see things in certain people's work that I admired and I would try to learn from that and then and then use that whatever in whatever way in my own work much like I would from a book otherwise or from a video but this was live and I could yeah. see it 
it being constructed and it was prior to YouTube. So anyway. Uh, yeah, incredible. Yeah, it was a great school in a way. And then that, so that was New Orleans like early 80s, right? Or That's right. Mid 80s? Mm -hmm. And do you mind painting a little bit of a picture of what the city was like then? Yeah, I mean, there were a large number of artists working on Jackson Square. In fact, it was impossible to get a license to work out there. And I tried several times and was unable to get an A license, what they call it, what was designated an A license, which means that you were able to work in front of the cathedral, which is where most all the activity was. Right. In years prior to that, artists were licensed and chose to work in the alleyway and Pirate's Alley. And there were still some old timers in there, wizened pros. And I ended up with one of those grade B licenses. And so I was down there in a much quieter zone, which suited my temperament at the time. You know, I was able to concentrate and work on my work, my studies, and not be as bothered by the commercial activity. Right. It was a quieter, more tranquil spot. So it worked fine for me. You know, it was definitely a survival level income, without a doubt, but nevertheless, an interesting place with wonderful trees and a, an amazing environment. You know, working next to some artists of considerable interest mm -hmm. who also were somewhat less commercially driven or, you know, driven by need. Right. So it was a good spot. Ah, oh, incredible. What a, what a grad school. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like, an unusual grad school, yeah, for sure. But the fact that you made it yourself and really got out of it, obviously, changed your life. So It was a great way to immerse yourself in technique. Now, I'm sure there, there were limitations to it also, without a doubt. You know, being and working in an environment which is, is primarily directed toward a touristic audience right. and commercially driven had its limitations. That was fine. At my level of development, you know, really I was concentrating on technique, mm -hmm. much less on, you know, expression, the nature of my expression, the importance, the message, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, and it was much more about the actual elements of putting something together. So in that sense, it was a very appropriate school. I mean, you have such a dis distinct style. Was there, do you remember a point or was it a conscious decision to move more into what your work has probably now known as I know it's a, a constant evolution obviously but yeah anybody go, though could probably recognize mm -hmm. one of your paintings as distinctly yours yes do you remember making a choice to move in that direction yes yeah. I do I think it was a few things but it's tip it's difficult to kind of tease out the truth from you know the the recitation of it over the years but you know for me there were a couple of moments that were critical one of them was a seminar I had taken in the S training and Earhart seminars training. And so it's now part of Landmark, uh, what they call Landmark. And so this is an organization that's kind of dedicated to people's fullest development. It's an organization that works to support people in, in self-expression. And I had a, there were a bunch of artists on the square, Fred Haynes and Marilyn Haynes uh, in particular, but there were a number of others that had been involved in this organization and had recommended to me over the years to get engaged in it. And also in Boston, people had approached me and, and, and suggested that I might like it because it was kind of like an empowerment technology. And I was very skeptical, you know, like one is about organizations that claim to, you know, help you find your life and, and find velocity in your interests and this kind of thing, right? You know, so, but... Uh, of course, I, I 
took it with a grain of salt. But then after a number of experiences with them, I said I'd take a chance and looked at it. I found myself in a seminar. I did take the S training and in a seminar and in that seminar, there was a kind of a challenge to look at your work as an opportunity for a breakthrough in you personally in self-expression. And so there was an actual concentration on that. And I found, and I took that challenge into my art and, and looked at a number of different ways that I would challenge my status quo, challenge the status quo around me, and took it on very pointedly from that viewpoint. And so I found myself painting large abstracts in City Park, doing watercolors at dawn, and then working stylistically. Because, you know, at that point, while I was still, you know, a very young artist, I had developed a, a set of collectors, you know, and I was having a reasonable amount of success at what I was doing. And I had a style that I felt very comfortable with, not entirely, one is never entirely comfortable, but, you know, I... I was there and I was doing work that I was proud of and people liked, right? And so I was able to sell to enough to make a living at it and things were developing. But this was a new challenge. It was actually, uh, they were setting me up to look for what would be a breakthrough in my personal expression, you know? So I said, okay, I'll give it a try. And in that context, I found myself on a street about... Oh, I'd say it was about 7.30 in the evening on a, maybe an early June night in the Bywater. And I had set up in front of this unbelievably beautiful Victorian, like in great shape. Looked like it had built, been built by a shipwright. I would bet my bottom dollar it had been. Yeah. Right, so it's up there in the maritime neighborhood of yeah. the Bywater. And it's, it's like a beautiful... A, a beautiful boat in the midst of devastation. All the houses around it were kind of abandoned and, wow. and decrepit or were poorly maintained. And there's this white boat and with this marvelous front porch on it and this elegant couple in their, I would guess, 80s would walk out every now and then on the, on the porch. And I was just so taken by the poetry, the quiet beauty of it. So I, I pulled over my little scooter, my Vespa, and I set my easel up and I started to work on it. And, you know, I, I, I was working nights because it was so hot that I couldn't paint in the day. My paints, I think I was working in acrylic at the time. My paints were drying so fast that it was impossible for me to work in the middle of the day. Yeah. And I had, I think, an obligation. I don't know what it was. I was going to be in a show or something. And I thought, I have to make this work. So I started to work at like 7.30 at night. And then I would work through the night. Wow. And then get up and sleep in the day, right? Yeah. Just so that I could get it done. So it was an interesting set of challenges where I had to find a street light that lit my subject. And then, or, or like the lighting in one way or another, and then have the a way of lighting my own my own work surface so i had a battery i had batteries and i had uh, all the food that i needed and you know <laughs> wine or coffee depending on the circumstance <laughs> for sure <laughs> so there i was and i set myself up and started working on this and this lady comes out from right behind me 
and says, hey, what are you doing? You know, and I explained to her, you know, I was setting up. She's like, wow, this is going to be fun. And she sits down and cracks a beer and turns on some music. And so it was like a party, right? Right. You know, so, I mean, I just basically was friendly and, and attended to my work. And then about hour two or so, she'd ask me second, third time if I'd like a beer and things were going <laughs> along okay. So I said, sure. The music got turned on or louder. And, and it kind of went like that. I, I, I got a couple of beers into it. It was probably around midnight and the music was wailing and I was taken by the kind of musicality of the situation in general right. and felt a need to swing this into, into the art itself. You know, So I felt in a way like I was moving music into the visual and or looking for the music in that visual moment and that this was my guide for me you know right and so it was kind of that was one of the very very first moments you know yeah i'm not saying that moment was only about that but definitely it was a kind of a combination of that seminars opening for me to take the risk into a different kind of expression that that looked very different from a, a stylized representation of the subject into a personalized representation of that subject. Right. Right. So here I am. She wants to dance. The the thing's right there, and I'm like dancing with the picture, and it was like holy mackerel, a great moment. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. It was really yeah, a I fun mean, night. I was actually going to ask. I mean, your your paintings have such a lyrical quality that. I, I was going to ask you if music played a part, but obviously <laughs> it must. I do love music, and uh, and the city is so musical. Yeah. And I think another thing that is very, I think, true to and comfortable in this interpretation is the organic nature of the town. Mm-hmm. Now, New Orleans is built of wood and stone and steel, but wood and stone principally, the old city. And it's also built on a very pliant subsurface, right. you know. And so, you know, there's a lot of movement, uh, a lot of coming and going, and a lot of organic life. I mean, essentially, if you fell asleep for a month or two, the whole city would be overgrown. Oh yeah, yeah. Sure. So when you when you woke up, and uh, so <laughs> you know, there's this thing about a lyricism and a organic quality, and so magical the two of them and I felt kind of sloon if you will taken by it yeah. and allowed myself to be in a swoon with it right uh, so oh, there it that's is great. that's often the way I think of it too I feel like I open up and I allow it to take me where it will right yeah that's such a great way to approach it yeah, yeah. it is it's so much more organic than where I originally started which right. was a very very kind of formulaic I'm not, and I don't want to make any of it negative because like a lot of this is part of learning and a lot sure. of it is part of just, this is another approach. And there are people that spend their lives in other approaches that are, are totally valid. But there was this thing about looking at something and then translating it through a technical viewpoint, kind of prism of a scientific perspective. Right. That would guarantee you a high fidelity rendering. Right, so there's a kind of visual fidelity, which is not nothing. It's something. Sure. It really is. I mean, we're talking about something, right? Yeah. Visually, and it, that's a lot, but it excludes often life. It excludes something 
perhaps more important. And so in this, in this look at personal expression, what I became present to was while I was unimpeachable in the rectitude of my expression, I was miles away from a kind of felt expression. Right. So, you know, like that's what opened up for me. And it is what is always opening up, you know, in the realm of communication is there is always some kind of frontier, you know. So I think an artist's life lives largely in that, in that, I don't want to call it a confront, but in that possibility for revelation, personal and, and social. Yeah. You know, so there's this question about what you're going to talk about and how much you're willing to say about it and what kind of risks you're willing to take, right? Right. So really, you know, in a way, that's the setup for an artist's life. It, it sounds like a kind of a spiritual setup, and I would say that's an actual fact. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of ways to look at it differently and some to trivialize it, you know. And so then we would go into, like, empty stylizations. Right. You know, yeah. style itself is, in a way, I mean, it speaks to temporary, you know, and it speaks to fashion, right? And nothing wrong with that. It can be very expressive. But the point is, if you're, if you're aping something, you know, you're probably not speaking very authentically. Right. And what I'm talking about here is the opportunity in any art piece to authentically represent what it is that you think and feel at that moment, right? Right. And look, there's, that's a big battlefield. That's a wonderful space to be in. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I would never get bored with that examination or participation with the internal versus the external and how you represent it. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, how, speaking of that, how, how would you say you approached a subject? Would you go with an open mind and see what presented itself? Or were you out looking for a specific thing with maybe an idea in mind that when you saw that thing, it, it helped express the idea you had inside? Hmm. It could go either way, but mostly the way I roll is I look for something that excites me. Hmm. And it's uh, ineffable. Wow, I'm sure if I spent some time, I could probably put some points on it. But I don't. I don't care so much about that. Yeah. I'm basically going like, okay, what turns me on? Right. <laughs> you know, I'm looking for excitement, and you find it in in the most amazing places. And so I I look for that. I just go open my book on a day, and I'm like, where's it gonna take me? So there's something like that, and then there's another thing that shows up, and it's like. It's almost a little bit more abstract in the sense that it's like, I'm asking myself the question, what's exciting right now? What do I feel? So there's less looking out there for something that's exciting and more looking internally. So I'm like, oh, do I see a possibility in something, right? right. So like I look at something and I go like, look, if you know, I feel it or I don't. And you know, sometimes, it, you get it wrong, right? That can happen, you know? So you find yourself in the middle of something and you're like, oh my God. But that's an interesting challenge in its own right too. Yeah. You know, it's like cooking and you go like, I added too much salt, so now what do you do? <laughs> right. You know, do you poison people or do you add something to it, right? Yeah. So it's just like, look, you're constantly confronted by your commitment to contribute something, right? Right. So you want to contribute something that enlivens yourself and enlivens the world, something that gives voice to your spirit, right? And, and life in general. And then you're looking at breakdown, 
as it shows up all over the place. You don't have enough paint, you're, you're out of canvas, or the canvas isn't right, or it's hot, or your, your kids are calling, you know, yeah. you're hungry, whatever it is, you know, and you include it all. I mean, that's all mundane, right. but you know, there's a whole another set of problems along the way that are actually generically related to making a piece of art. Like, like, let's say for example, you go there with the best of intentions and great excitement, and you look at it, and it's and it sucks, right. and you're like, ah, you know, well, you may be in just a state. And you may find out tomorrow morning that you love it. That honestly does happen to me. Yeah. It's usually not as extreme as that, but it, it happens a lot where I'm like, ah, and then the next day I like it. But then there's also the other thing that shows up where you think it's great. And then the next day you look at it and you're like, oh. And so there's this issue with your integrity and staying there and being true to it. Right. So you got to go back into that work and in your it's constantly a process and I'm sure this sounds like a lot of other professions at this moment where you do your damn best. Mm -hmm. You know, you're on your line to on the line to make what you can to do the best that you can. Right. Right. Yeah. If you're interested and you better be because there's a lot of other people that are very interested in that and they're going to eat your lunch if you don't. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> it is interesting. I mean, and there's a, a wonderful trend now. People are, are really bringing back figurative work and, you know, sort of leaning towards that classical style. But I was having a conversation with an art teacher of mine, and, there, and he was saying, it's great to bring back all these technical skills, but not a lot of people have much to say with those skills, which is kind of interesting. So the figurative is coming back, but not a lot of people have much to say. Right, and they're technically gorgeous. I mean, it's just yeah. like, there's a portrait of that person, and it's beautiful, but now what are you gonna do with it? Yeah, and it, you might even compare that to uh, mastery and classical piano, too. Mm -hmm. So, it's a good point, and I would say that, you know, technical mastery is not equivalent to meaningful expression. Right. It's technical mastery, and that'll get you a certain distance, and it's what some people are really, really interested in. Mm -hmm. And then again, it doesn't have a hell of a lot to do with like your personal expression. So there's this question about what is your personal expression? And again, we're back at the frontier of what you're willing to be revealing of. Right. So, you know, like there are issues of vulnerability there. There are issues of, of courage and there are issues of personal mastery, you know. So, yeah. you know, truth telling is a very important thing and some Art courses know that and are engaged in it and others not. But honestly, it's a lot like writing also. You know, it's one thing to write a technical manual, right. tell you how to operate your, your, your lawnmower. It's another to talk about how you feel about your lawnmower and your lawn being cut, right? right? And what you say there may be poignant and touching, right? most probably if you tell the truth about it. But then what's the risk there? You tell the truth, right? Yeah. About your love for your lawn. Well, people are gonna know what a nerd you are. They're gonna know, you know, what a hick or hoke you are, right? Mm -hmm. Are you willing to own that? You know, and I think you should, Yeah. right? Honestly, but it takes a certain willingness, you know, to stand up and be proud 
around that and to tell that tell that truth. But it, the importance of it is so critical. It means, first of all, it means some element or measure of self-love, or at least mm. self-exposure. Like there's a lot of artists that are very, or there are artists that are very forthcoming, vulnerable, and open, that are self-loathing. And while, you know, it's perhaps regrettable, it is revealing and poignant. And it speaks to, everybody can relate to that, at least in part, you know, yeah. or, or we're, we're touched by it, you're even hurt by it, you know, empathetic with it. And I think the important part of it is less the emotion, but it is the emotion. It is the expression of an emotion, of, of, a, of a state, of a thought, of a, uh, you know, it's a right. truth, if yeah. you will, right? Absolutely. And so there's a deal. Go there. Go to the poignant. And then you're, you know, you will see that it's quite divergent from what would look like a mere uh, didactic recitation of reality in front of you. You know, it's like inclusive of you. Like your twistedness is in the middle of it. Right. Right. So, all right. Let's see it. Wow, you're very timid. Wow. But, you know, if you if you own that, the timid person is a wonderful person. Oh my god. You know, you're like this you're the most beautiful thing ever, right? Right. And so you're like, okay, let's go there. Right? So, that's how I see it. It's like a frontier. Uh, there's a Zen master named Joko Beck from Houston who used to talks about everybody's in a boat and they're going toward a shore and the the what's up is how close we're willing to go we have that out in front of us and how open are we to go there toward that shore for us you know and so we open and this is the process of opening and it's what takes place in an artistic expression it is the philosophic underpinning of that vulnerability that's expressed. I think that's a huge takeaway for a lot of artists, especially, I would guess, including myself, most artists are pretty sensitive types. So it's like, how, how do you make the commitment to yourself to open up and be vulnerable? I guess that's the real question. That's right, yeah. And, and that's different for everyone, I'm sure. That's right. Yeah. I mean, where it will take you is extraordinarily personal. Yeah. I mean, each of us is so unique. It's unknowable. But what is discernible is a commitment to go there. And that you can witness in people all day long, how much they're there or how much they're not there. Right. You can witness commitment very evidently. Now, where that's taking that person, it's very, very difficult to know, you know, and unique. Everybody's passions are different. But where they're willing to go. Now, that's what gets somebody into, gets their pocket knife out and, and sees them whittling a snake on a bar of soap as opposed to sitting and playing a video game for the rest of the day. Right. You know, is, you know, a certain degree of commitment to their personal expression. Do you know how many snakes they failed at? And you may even feel that that is a totally lame thing to represent juvenile even right? right but i'll tell you what i have a great deal of respect for it
because it's the expression of their mentality. It's the expression of their passion. Yeah. And, and I think it's the way genius is born. And what we ought to be doing is telling that kid, all right, you're off into that pogo stick. Here's another one. You know, yeah. hop higher. You know, so yeah. that's where I look at it. Yeah, that's a great point of view. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. I guess that leads me to my next question a little bit. Speaking of that vulnerable part, and while you're developing a style and developing a body of work, at some point, there's a desire to maybe start showing and potentially selling. Yeah. Was, was that an organic thing because you were sort of out on the street and maybe selling a piece or two? Or did you say, I'm, I'm now at a point where I, I feel the confidence to take this to market? Well, I had it more or less. I have a kind of a commercial orientation mm-hmm. to a fair n- uh, number uh, of things that I've taken on in my life. And... You know, I kind of always felt that. I saw in, in my work as a young man many artists that were disdainful of the world of, of commerce, mm-hmm. you know, and it's kind of a cliche almost that, you know, artists are, are commercially inept and disengaged on that level and rightfully so, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of stuff around that. Yeah, there's a stigma. Which is really not so. Actually, there's quite a number of artists who are articulate about all manner of things and mathematically inclined or commercially inclined or technically capable. I mean, really, artists come in in all varieties. Mm -hmm. And it's not a right way to be. That is, in other words, um, asocial and, and uncommercial. Right. So like right on from the very start, actually, I had a friend in Boston whose brother was a an artist and he was a very talented renderer. And I was always in love with his work. It was very poetic and had a romantic quality to it. Mm. And he was always very commercial, like he'd be selling his work in the subway in Boston. And I was like, oh, my God, it's so good. You know, and he would be totally humble about it and he'd sell his work for very little money but enough to pay the rent you know he had a he had a nice apartment i forget exactly what part of town it was it wasn't actually in boston proper but he managed to make his living at it and i was so impressed by that yeah so i had that influence you know from an early age or even prior to my art you know making art i saw him doing this in a self-effacing way so then i came here and actually, I was used to working even before that on the street, you know, because I'd go out and I had a bicycle at first and then I would had a scooter and I'd go to a situation and I'd set up and I'd and I'd stay there. Usually I'd do a drawing over a period of four or five days. Wow. I mean, this is not a fast thing, right? I'm yeah. learning. Right. So I'm like actually with books <laughs> at the same time that I'm drawing, you know. And I read a chapter and I go there and I work on my drawing and I read a little bit more and I draw some more. And then I'd put the drawings that I did out on the sidewalk next to me while I'm drawing. And if somebody came by and asked about them, you know, I would sell them if I could, right? Yeah. So, I mean, from the very, very start, I was present to the possibility of making some modest money that enabled me to continue my work and studies. Right. And I felt like, you know, look, I'll just do the best that I can. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, for a long time, I was making a dollar an hour, I would say, and that was okay. Yeah. Because you can actually, if you, you know, if you do it, if you're really committed, you can live on that. Not opulently. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> but look, this is America. This is America, man. How many people are starving? Nobody's starving. You know, like I take a risk, right? So I'm out, I'm out there. I'm taking some time. I'm studying drawing. I'm poor. I'm having fun. You can't believe the appreciation that a lot of people have at that sincerity of oh, yeah. all of that. And also for me, having worked like 60, 70 hours a week as a manager of an organization of people with thousands of people in it. You know, this was a respite. This was a retreat. This was a treat, you know, to be involved in a serious intellectual pursuit and, and relative comfort. So there were a lot of things about it that were fascinating. And I definitely was engaged on the commercial level right away. You know, yeah. so, so it was great on that. That's level. really cool. Yeah. yeah, I would go there again if if I if I had to. Yeah. You know, there's a certain fascinating thing about the marketplace at ground level. <laughs> For sure. You know, like people come along and they'll say anything to you, like they just tell you the truth. There's no consequence. You're a street artist, right? <laughs> I can remember people saying anything. Really, it was just fascinating. And then I can remember people telling me to to take care and to watch out and be careful because you know um, I could uh, I could you know fall in hard times and I can remember saying to them there's no place to fall to I'm already here I'm already <laughs> on the street there's no lower right this is it right and and it, there's something great about that you know that you can't fall any lower you know yeah so there's a certain groundedness in it yeah and almost a certain weirdly freedom yes that's right that freedom's level. just yeah. another word for nothing less to lose right. left to lose yeah and there's some wisdom in that without yeah. a doubt i didn't have anything really to lose right yeah which is great and then so at some point obviously things started picking up and what at what point did you realize you wanted to have your own gallery well at some point along the way well a few things started to happen like i got to a point where people actually there was a demand an active demand for my work cool yeah That's a good and place to be. that was prior to my like stylistic shifts mm. earlier on but you know there was a fair amount of demand for my work i was actually had a, a list of clients and you know i, I was working very steadily things very cool. were coming along fairly nicely i got started to get invitations to show and uh, so I started to show around town I showed at Carol Robinson's gallery and I showed with Daska Roth up on on magazine and began to show in other parts of the country occasionally so it was a good harbinger you know I still was working on the street though at that time and there became a tension and I can remember People saying to me, specifically the galleries, look, this has got to break at some point. You know, you can't be out here hustling this stuff on the street and then expect to sell it in the gallery. You know, Makes so, sense. you know, I started to look at that uh, as, a, uh, as a conflicting engagement. And at some point, one of my associates said to me, that's it, you've got to make the change. And she supported me yeah. in making that change. Really, you know, there's a certain weddedness that you can get to the savage life. And I kind of felt very comfortable in it. You know, there's a lot of freedom inside of that. I had an apartment on Rampart Street that cost me $75 a month. And, and the landlord at one point raised the rent from 75 to I think 105 
dollars, and I had a whole floor of a building upstairs <laughs> oh, with, wow. with a balcony in the front and the back in a backyard. Now it wasn't opulent by any means, and it was a small, smallish apartment, mm -hmm. but it was way enough for me to work in and live in as a single man, and in the backyard too, and and affordable. And plus, he let me go one time, one year without paying the rent, <laughs> and then he said, "Please." Will you please pay the rent, right? So it was another interesting point for me. Okay, I'm going to refer to it again because sure. I was in that seminar at that time, right? And there was this thing about completion of stuff. And there were two things that were incomplete. One is I was behind on my rent about a year. And he was like so compassionate. He loved my work and he had taken some of it and trade. And, and he was very thoughtful and and empathetic, but still I was incomplete not having paid that rent. And so in this seminar, I became present to the cost of that incompletion. And, and another one was that I had student loans that I realized at that point that paying them off the rate that I was paying them or not paying them, I can't remember, but I think I was paying them at, at the rate at which I was paying them, it would go on for the rest of my life. Wow. And even maybe that they would grow, I forget. But there was, actually there are people out there like that, you know. Yeah. And like I was like, oh my God, look at this. This is the trajectory, right? And so there was a real challenge for me there. And it was right in that same time period. And I said, okay, I'm going to look at shifting the way that I go. And I, there were two partners that I had in that time frame, uh, two women, friends of mine, that were like, we love what you do, we like you too, and we're gonna support you in moving out of this, I don't know what you wanna call it, bohemian lifestyle. All right, that's a very colorful way to put it, <laughs> right? You know, so I had my bicycle and tons of free time and just like, like loving the engagement in my study and work, but sometimes you need a bit more obligation, you right. know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes obligation or commitment and engagement can be a an elevating experience, and sometimes you don't know what you don't know, right? You know, so I had this commitment to art, but I think that it was great for me to enlarge that commitment and enlarge my commitment to sharing it and enlarge my commitment to participation in the actual financial world, right? Right. So I was like, okay, here we go. And I'm gonna take this on and do better. And we moved out of that apartment. I moved out of that apartment. And thankfully it was coinciding with some success in the galleries. And I managed to rent a house up in the Irish Channel. It was a nice house, you know, big, uh, Victorian, had a front porch on it. I mean, it was by no means an opulent neighborhood, and in that time period it was actually a fairly abandoned neighborhood. But still, it was a huge move for me yeah. into this home uh, of the end of the 19th century with high ceilings and wonderful windows and a complicated uh, arrangement, a double parlor in the front. So it was like magic. Yeah. And I got up there and I my rent was four or five times higher than I had been used to. Thank God people were liking the work, you know, <laughs> and I was able to arrive to the occasion, which would now, if you looked at it, comparatively be a very low rent, but still it was a huge shift for me. Yeah. Oh, that, that's, that's a really cool insight though, to make that commitment. To, to growing 
art practice. Yeah. I think that's a huge distinction, yeah. That was in, incredible. And those two women supported me in doing that. They weren't going to take no. And they got me up into that. And they had confidence, full confidence, that I could rise to the occasion much more than I did. I dragged my feet. I resisted. And they basically found it and forced me to move. <laughs> and, and so I got in there. And I was like, oh, my God, you know. Like, what I'm doing is not going to make the rent, you know, so I have to, like, wake up and get with it, right? Yeah. So that's the way it goes. Like, you cannot pay thousands of dollars a month rent behaving like your rent was only $200, right. you know. So you can't behave the same way and handle those same obligations. So it required me to recontextualize the, the passage of my day. Yeah. Which I managed to do. I'm not suggesting that the rent was thousands of dollars. Right. It wasn't, but it's just a metaphor, you know. Sure. So I enlarged my obligation. My promise got a lot bigger. And I committed myself to playing the game to make that work. And so there was a lot of personal adjustment in the middle of it. Huh. It was great. Yeah. Nothing like forced growth, right? That's right. <laughs> That's right. And then so is that when you started moving into bigger paintings? Uh, yeah, it coincidentally yeah. did move into bigger paintings at that time. I can remember making quite a few larger works, and yeah, definitely I was. In your first sort of gallery shows, were those still the pastels, or were they oils as well? No, they were all all manner. I had, at that point, I've been doing uh, pastel, acrylics, watercolor even, but more acrylics, oils, and pastel. Yeah. Yeah, so I'd... I'd more or less moved from the world of drawing into the world of, of active paint. I, I mean, just surrounded by some of these big pieces here, it's just, these houses are incredible. <laughs> they have such a, I mean, they just leap off the canvas at you. Yeah, yeah, I love to work large, and I typically do. Although, what I find is often, again, I'm constantly finding out what I don't know. And that is that I have had some galleries, mostly in Europe, asking for very small work. Like mm. I have a show running in France and they wanted small work because they explained to me like, you know, we're, you know, we're not in Paris and people have lower ceilings and they want smaller work and your work is often very big. And I said, oh, okay, let me do it. And so I started making small works. Well, I just, I spent that summer painting small works and I loved it. And so it's like, really, honestly, there's a lot of joy in any kind of a challenge, you know, once you give into it, I suppose. Like, that's true for me. Right. Maybe not for someone else, but I love making the small works. I Now I feel like I can make work any size and, and be happy with it, mm -hmm. that there's pleasures in all of them. And basically, I kind of alternate. I go back and forth. I'll work big for a while, and then I'll go into some small work, and I hang there for a while, and you know, until I tire of it or get a a wild hair and feel like going large. Right. Uh, do you keep any sort of sketchbook? Or have you ever? Sketched first? Or like sketchbook, like a daily? Yeah, well, I constantly carry a sketchbook. Mm. Um, and sometimes I carry two. And I'm constantly sketching. And sometimes they're relevant to the paintings that I'm doing, and sometimes they're not. Yeah. You know, a lot of times they're, they're notions, they're ideas. And a lot of times they have to do with commercial work that I do. Sometimes they have to do with sculpture. A lot of times they have to do with sculpture or inventions. But I feel very comfortable with, um, with a pen or pencil 
and enjoy drawing and I do scores of notebooks a year both in terms of notes and in terms of sketches yeah so you know it's voluminous and pleasurable and difficult to organize I bet. honestly <laughs> I mean they just pile up you know so it's amazing and wonderful you know and I go back three years into some of them and I'm like oh my god I completely forgot about this or right you know it, it's always a lot of fun and I do sketch before I make a painting mm. so my process is basically to look for something or imagine something like for instance in the last two weeks I've only worked from my mind so oh, wow. you know I work I just set up before an easel and I have an idea of something that I'd like to paint. And it's basically an iteration of an image that I did a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So I basically became inspired by something that was existent in life, although it often it'll just be something that I remember. But typically, I'm relating, of course I'm relating to something. I'm relating to something, you know, in my mind. And I have that vision in my head, and I have different notions or, or takes on it. And I go to the easel the next day or the day after or whenever I finish work and getting ready for the next one. And, uh, and I refer to that. And I'm like, is there something there? I'm like, in my head, is there something there? Is there something that I feel like I've got to say? And could I have some fun with that? Right. And, and so I do. And you wouldn't believe the mutation of these babies. <laughs> I mean, it's just a trip and a half yeah. to see where they take you. And it's fun, and I feel like it's totally organic and, uh, and legitimate. And who cares about legitimacy? I mean, le legitimacy in this case is qualified by their effectiveness, which to me is a way of asking, are they evocative? Mm -hmm. You know, are they, do they speak to me? Are they in any way enlivening, illuminating, fun, you know, challenging, yeah. you know, I mean, do I, do I feel like there's some interest here? And, you know, that's the way it goes. Like, and I look at it, that's my judgment tool. I hold that up and I go like, wow, this is rocking. Well, I'm going to keep going. You know, it's, but it, it's honestly, you know, where I'm looking right there in that moment, it's less judgment about the last painting. It's almost always a judgment about the truth for me right in my heart. Yeah. You know, like, is this rocking? Right? That's where the rubber hits the road. If it's not rocking, I need to do something about that. Right? And there it is. That's where you meet yourself, you know. Yeah. And like where do we go from here? Do I have the heart, the spirit? Is this true? Do I even care? Am I fooling around with flowers when I should be drawing a car? You know? And you know, so you're telling hopefully some truths there and it gets you onto some railroad tracks that take you somewhere. Right. I think, yeah, that's a great barometer. I think I often do get locked into the, is this technically working instead of, is it, is it hitting the right buttons? As we all do. Yeah. Of course. And I would say it's probably one of the most important injunctions that I would put out there for another artist. And that would be watch that one. Really, this is not primarily, foundationally about a technical expression. Yeah, technical expressions come up. You may have them as your largest challenge. Not illegitimate, but you're not going to live there forever. Right. And at some point, it's much more about, look, even if it's very, very important for you to address technical issues, don't 
Don't leave behind your heart. You know, you've got to like say, all right, I know I'm working on caricaturo. I know I'm working on values of colors. I know I'm working on line. Screw it. I'm going to talk about anger. I'm going to talk about the generosity in this person's face. I'm going to talk about the yellowness of this flower and how it makes me feel. Right? Right. And so you go there and you screw line quality. You leave it on the table for a while, right? Yeah. So this is this is a matter of perspective and balance because you know, like man, you really want to watch the poison of doing it right. You know, and and there is a, a notion of doing it right that can creep in in all manner of things that it's not only about the technical expression, but it's about the way that you express about that. Yeah. Is that doing it right? I mean, you know, like, it, should it look like graffiti? I mean, is that right now? Well, yeah, in some people's book, it is right now, right? But is that right for you, right? You right. know, so I would say, you know, this is a context that you want to look at. Why are you in this and what are you in it for? You know, and part of this is about sharing your truth now, some of it might be about you making a living doing this too. I'm not saying that we don't live in that world. Right. And there are things that condition that discussion. Some of them are stylistic. Some of them are just merely commercial considerations. And, you know, you have to take all that into account. But the thing that I'm arguing for most of all is the poetic possibility of revelation in art. Like, I get it. Like, you live once. And you really don't want to leave your voice in a bag in favor of the right way to do it. So remember that. Bring it out. If you can only do it once a week, bring it out. If you can do it every day, bring it out. You know? Yeah. And then start to condition. Maybe, maybe you bring some technique to your personal expression instead of bringing your personal expression to technique. Like, let's have a sense of, of superior commitment here. Like, you know, where I got this as much as anything, I was looking at Max Ernst's work, and uh, I think I was in MoMA in New York, and I was like walking around and looking at everything, and one of the things that was most powerful to me was this drawing that he had all this black line around figures, right? Mm. I mean, like thick, heavy black line around these figures, and I'm like, oh my God. I mean, it's like totally unnatural. And they were so powerful. Yeah. They were so powerful. It was like they were three figures and they were all emotion, no technique at all. And man, they were just knock you off your feet. And I was like, wow, there's a lesson there, you know? Yeah, for there's sure. A lesson. Not right, not wrong, but real, you know? And so, whatever, I'm, I'm just... I'm putting that out there. There's a lot of examples like that where you can find it, where there's a truth told that leaves a, a prioritization or a concentration on technique behind. And it's a natural thing for people who are developing their skill to put a lot of focus on technique mm -hmm. because it serves expression. You know, there's another downside that can come from a neglect of technique. And that's called you know, like, I don't know, unqualified emotiveness, maybe. Mm -hmm. And it is a, you know, a very evident expression without structure. Right. Which is, you know, 
Look, you see that all the time. Like, what's your goal? You want to communicate, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to communicate, which means that you're responsible for what you say over there in the head of somebody that you just spoke to. Right. It ain't just out of your mouth, right? Because you can, you can communicate out of your mouth. What you're more doing is like relieving yourself of something. But did they get it? And a whole lot of the time, they didn't get it. So there's at least an element of responsibility for you to be responsible for what somebody hears as much as what you've said, right? In the real world, in the real world of communication. Right. No, that's a huge distinction, I think. Yeah. To make, yeah. Absolutely it is. Yeah. It's like if, if you want to write a poem in French, know a little bit of French. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> Did anybody get it? Right. Right. Now, you know, maybe you write a poem in English and then you consider the fact that there's a French word that cuts to the core and you want to add that and you do it. And uh, c'est bien, <laughs> on, a, on a réussi. Oui, you oui. add it and it's, you arrived with it. Yeah. You know? And that's great. So you, you put, that, that is a qualification. There, there is a qualification of what's there what have I created? I'm liking that. I'm working that one a lot right now. Yeah. That's gonna, an important distinction. I'm going to take that on. We're talking about French stuff a little bit. Now, you spend part of your year in France now. Yes, I do. And how long have you been doing that? God, forever. Like 30 years, maybe? Wow. Yeah, long time. I was invited to do a show in the south of France like 30-some years ago. I went over and I started showing with that gallery, and um, out of that, I found myself with a Swiss gallery. So I was going over in the summer and, and doing these shows, and sometimes in, in Spain or Germany, uh, eventually in England. And I was spending more time over there. Mm. And at one point, well, it was just a simple, practical fact that I would fly into Paris and go from there. Paris was kind of like the best place to fly into yeah. probably was the least expensive mm -hmm. and I would travel down A6 which is the main artery uh, in France yep. to the south of France where I typically would show or I would go down A6 and to the mid midi en France uh, and I'd hit Macon Macon like Macon in Georgia mm -hmm. and burn left for Lausanne and Geneva always making that trajectory and one day I was on my way to Lausanne and I got a call from the gallery director asking me how the, the voyage was going and I said, it's beautiful out, I'd like to stop on the side of the road and take some photos. And he was a little upset being Swiss and punctual. Yeah, for sure. But I, I said, I'm going to do it. You know, what's 20 minutes? It was so gorgeous and Burgundy is just stunningly beautiful. Yeah. So I got off the road at a place called Tornu, I started wandering around and I was just like, oh my God, I cannot believe how beautiful these rolling hills are, these small villages. And so I, I called him and I said, I'm gonna be a little bit later. I ended up spending a good part of the afternoon and then getting back on the road. Well, it was transformative for me. I knew that I wanted to spend time in France at that point in the countryside, not in Cannes or Perpignan or Paris, but in France, le profonde. Anyway, I got into Switzerland and I, I shared my, my excitement about that. And while they were somewhat dismissive, 
it never left me as a thought. And then at some point you bought a property in Burgundy? Yes, exactly. Actually, I said to the gallery, which was a great thing in Europe, often, you know, you get a patron or a gallery and they will support your work. Mm -hmm. And I found a patron in Switzerland who supported my trips there. And so they basically gave me a place to live and work in Switzerland for, uh, I don't know, two or three years. And then after this discovery, I said, I'm very interested in living in France and in this particular village that I went through. Yeah. And while they were somewhat surprised, they said, fine. Well, I requested that they find me an apartment there. And they said they would be more than happy to do that. So they went over there and instead of finding me an apartment, they actually bought a building and then said, <laughs> we're going to give you the apartment on the downstairs and we're going to keep the upstairs. Wow. It was great, but a little close for comfort. You know, so I, I said, well, I'm going to find my own place. I socked into Merfol, the Merfol, the crazy mother, which is a, a local theater in the town of Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. It's actually Chambon, part of Chardonnay, Sous Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. And that's where the grape came from, you know. So there I was in this little wild local theater, which is a wonderful theater. That's how I actually discovered that little village was I went to the theater to see these performances and I was like, oh my God, these people are so talented. Wow. And I just started, I became a regular at the theater and actually they had a little hotel. And I ended up staying in that little hotel and eventually renting a barn that they had on, on not far from the theater. So I was there for God knows how long, but I'd say three months. And finally, because I was showing and, you know, and working and it, at some point my, accountant said to me look you know you're spending enough money that you should really consider maybe buying something yeah or it wouldn't hurt right so i managed to i looked around everywhere and i found a very inexpensive house wow. in a small village that was abandoned for a hundred years and had no plumbing or electricity or anything and i think it was probably 700 years old i'm gonna guess maybe wow, incredible it could be it could have been a little less but it was really old and as it turned out i ended up buying three little houses next to each other for slightly over twenty thousand dollars yeah and you know i i'm a handy guy so i basically they were tiny like one room houses and i ended up punching holes in them putting them together and making a very interesting little dwelling on a on a slight slope wow all of them had wine cellars and one of them had actual wine press in the back you know so i actually had a little winery and a barn um and oh, man. yeah it was it was so amazing <laughs> yeah you know? it sounds like and not a person not one in the village spoke english uh -huh. <laughs> and there was no internet and i didn't have a telephone and i had power in one of the houses and and plumbing if you want to call it that in one of the houses and so it was a great challenge you know and I had to learn to speak French. And I mean, literally, I travel like maybe five miles to a payphone at the end of the day with my bottle of wine and I'd set up for my, my phone call, you know. And it was great fun. You oh, know? sounds incredible. It was. Oh, man. It, and, it, you know, locked in another world. Yeah, for sure. Do your artistic pursuits differ there than they do in New Orleans? My artistic pursuits? In terms of what you're interested in painting or what you're interested in engaging well, with? Yes. Yes, they are. They're very different. First of all, it's hilly. You know, train's different. 
the flora is different and fauna is different. Mm-hmm. So the people and the plants are unique. And I originally, you know, when I first started, I was basically hewing to, when I first worked there, I was more or less still doing my, my New Orleans subject matter, you yeah. know, but I painted more figures, mm. which typically was the way that I adjusted to my European shows was I showed mostly figures and sometimes, you know, cars and a little bit of architecture, but very shortly thereafter, as it became a more frequent engagement, I started to paint the subject matter around me. Mm. So very shortly thereafter, I was painting the village and painting the landscape. So the landscape became a subject for me, the French landscape, and continued with my interest in the figure. Also, I started to work with French models and people in cafes and that, that sort of thing. Yeah. So yeah, I, it was, I, typically that's my MO. Where I am, I do what's around me. Yeah. You know, I like to be influenced by it. Like it fits my MO of just kind of being influenced by and taken by what is around me. And, and, and I seeing that as the healthiest thing. Now, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm not always like that. Like there are times when I'm totally obsessed by an over busy roof brain, but you know, there are other times when I can let go of that in my best moments, you know, I'm here. For what's going on and sensible to the beauty of that sunlight on the house falling next to me or this this bee that that lands there and i'm like oh my god but other days of course you know you're too busy and you're worried about whatever you know the political situation or your bills or your fight with your brother or whatever right thing that life has you in the middle of yeah so but there you know here i am this totally quiet village with very little of everything what an interesting challenge to go out and try to buy green beans, you know, and learn how to say that. And so I got myself a little book, you know, that phonetically said how to speak French. Uh-huh. And I started to wing it and learn it. And any chance I'd get every day, in fact, I would go out to the cafes with my book and I'd spend two, three hours at lunch learning French, you know. Amazing. Which is basically a secondary commitment there. Right. Yeah. So. <laughs> Oh, you've done it right. <laughs> it was it was a fabulous thing. French language is a wonderful language. I mean, the culture is amazing mm-hmm. and very complicated. The terrain of France is very, very unique and different, and, mm-hmm. and it's beautiful everywhere. Yeah. So there's no part of France except where modern commerce has desecrated the natural beauty that isn't stunning. Right. So France in its entirety, in its natural form, and in its historic form, is in a most amazing country, very, very beautiful. And so there, what you find is that there are incredible differences over a 10 mile, 10 mile stretch. Mm-hmm. And that often there's a culture that exists on one side of a river and another, or on one side of a hill or another. And I mean, it was much more drastic than that 100 years ago, but still the reverberations of that live on in the form of clafouti that you that you eat for lunch, or the way that your boeuf bourguignon is put together, or you know the the you know potatoes lyonnais here, and then you go over the the hill there and it's freaked, you know. Right. So <laughs> it's like a wonderful thing. You know, mostly we know that by way of the diversity and enormous diversity of French cuisine, and honestly. You know, we're only present to a small part of that. Right. It's a never-ending, 
marvel to me, the diversity of that and the, and the styles of wine, the façon and the cuisinier, n'importe quoi. And you know, you just find endless sausage, they're endless, right? Oh, yeah. So I love that. And I think it's something that we had in America and you have had it everywhere. So it's one of the great things about, about an impenetrable world or a world that's apart is that people struggle with their unique problems and come to unique solutions. And that's what we call culture in some cases and in some ways, right? right. And sure. so you lose that, right, when you open up to cross-pollinization. So sometimes it's great, you know, and sometimes there's things lost in it. And, uh, well, most of all, we like going to a for visit a foreign culture because of the uniqueness. And there, um, I'm loving all of that, you know. I so enjoy the distinctive qualities of French culture, and yeah. yeah, I'm off into it. Yeah, I've been fortunate enough to travel around France, but I, I still have yet to get to Burgundy. I was in Bordeaux last fall and uh, Nar Narbonne, that's La Clap region, but I'm dying to get to Burgundy, so. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, it's a wonderful <laughs> world fall. to discover. And also you have to go from there into the massive Centrale, which nobody mm -hmm. ever goes to visit. But like, I'm in argument these days for visiting the parts of the world where nobody else goes. Yeah, absolutely, me too. <laughs> if you're a romantic, you know, if you like the old ways, you know, like there are plenty of places in Europe, anytime you're in an agricultural region now, you're like looking back to the old days, yeah. you know, because like here in the States, a lot of people and times have required people to move to the big cities. And so if you want a sample of, you know, the way that it used to be done, you go back out, out to the countryside. Yeah. yeah. For me, nothing beats a local small town French farmer's market where the produce is fresh. You've got the local cheese guy, it's just like the best. It's killer, man. I'm going <laughs> to give you some advice about how to buy a place over there after we're done. <laughs> Sounds good. Spectacular. <laughs> uh, so obviously New Orleans is heavily influenced by French culture, Spanish culture, European. Do you see, do you still see a lot of similarities in New Orleans to European culture? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I do. Yeah. There's a tremendous influence of French culture on New Orleans. Uh, you know, in, in many different ways, you know, there's evidence of the, the Cartesian thinking and philosophy in the Catholicism of our city, mm -hmm. and also evidence of the mysticism evident in the Catholicism uh, and the aspects of it that are brought here. I would not attribute that entirely to the Catholicism, but it's definitely a part of the mix, the rich um, allegorical aspects and um, and... Then there's the food, of course, which is very, very influenced by the French cooking and the language, you know, our, you know, language. And we even have communities all around the city of New Orleans that, that still speak a great deal of uh, French. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, where I started to learn French was I got a French girlfriend when I came down here, a Cajun girl. She was from Golden Meadow and her parents spoke French. Her mom spoke some English, and her dad spoke only French. And so after a year or so, it was like if the only way I was going to have a relationship with him was to start to learn to speak French. So I think it was, I'm trying to recollect how that dovetailed with my trips to France, but that's where I started to learn French. Yeah. You know, I said I have to begin to, you know, at least learn the the uh, polytests with, uh, right. you know, to communicate. And anyway, the influence of France here is strong and welcome. You know, it's a great culture. Their emphasis on excellence, 
and their excellence in culinary art, you know, is very, very welcome. Now, I feel that we also bring something to France, too. And I think that they're influenced by our musical traditions. Mm -hmm. they're, they're influenced greatly by jazz. They're influenced by our cultural expressiveness here. Now, don't forget that France, you know, was in Haiti and before. And France has the islands, you know, the French islands. Right. So there's an influence. France is intimately tied to Africa in very similar ways that New Orleans is tied to Africa and Haiti, too. So there's this very interesting overlapping there and uh, cultural coincidence where we dance with an African tradition as do the French people too. And they've embraced that just as we have in New Orleans. So we have a polyphonic culture here that has benefited from that influence in many ways also. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you have a favorite New Orleans dish? What would that be? Yeah, I'm going to go for... I'm going to give it to beans and rice. Yeah, it's a good one. Yep. Well, I know you have to get going, James, so I won't keep you anymore. But uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing all the insights you did. It's been my pleasure. And I appreciate your commitment to the arts. And I'm very thankful for my opportunity to make, I hope, a small contribution to any understanding in that way. Absolutely. Thanks I really, again. I really appreciate it. Thank okay. you.